You're listening to Lies and Half-Truths, tales written and performed by A.P. Weber. Last time, on the Lies and Half-Truths podcast, we left Rhett Ellis as a prisoner of the Littleton Motorcycle Club, soliciting the dubious help of an undercover vice agent. When Chester Reeves walks into the room, the very man he's been looking for, will Ellis live long enough to complete his mission? On this episode of Lies and Half-Truths, the final part of The Propagandist. First, a short break. Stay with us. This episode of Lies and Half-Truths is brought to you by Arts Digital. Arts Digital is a graphic design and digital development studio. Go to artsdigital.co. Fun website, propaganda, pragmatism. That's artsdigital.co. Artsdigital.co. And now, part three of The Propagandist. Reeves greeted the two bikers, then stood before Ellis with his hands folded in front of him. Big hands, thick and cracked and entirely unlike what one would expect from a musician. The big man looked at Ellis, but spoke to the bikers. Untie Moments later, Ellis stood on the porch of a rickety cabin in the woods. Moonlight pouring through the pine quills offered the only illumination other than the dim amber square cast on the ground from the cabin window. Insects sang in their soft chorus some indefinite distance away. How different the world seemed out here. How unlike the gears of a machine. He rubbed his sore wrists where his hands had lately been bound, opened and closed his fingers to promote circulation, while he took a moment to appreciate the shrouded beauty of his surroundings. Chester Reeves regarded him with the keen, observant eyes of a poet. He said, I'm certain city folk would be surprised that I'm back here in Littleton, but you, can see why I've returned, can't you? Between the jagged pines, a mass of white stars gleamed like a vein of priceless ore. Watching them burn against the black, Ellis nodded and said, Yeah, out here, one can almost forget. He took a heavy breath. After a moment, Reeves said, Shall we discuss the nature of your visit? I assume you are a federal agent? A contractor. Propaganda sent me to find you and... 
discuss the terms of your return to the spotlight. Running his fingers through his deep beard with one hand, Reeves watched Ellis for a second. Walk with me, Mr. Hunt, he said, and stepped down off the porch into the forested night. Practically jogging to keep up with the big man, Ellis said, It's Ellis, actually. Rhett Ellis. The other name was a cover. We've never met, but I was part of the propaganda team you were working with back before you retired. Reeves merely grunted and strode on. A well-worn path appeared beneath their feet. Ellis realized this was not a mere pleasure stroll. The folk singer was taking him somewhere. Ahead, the shadows began to coalesce into a vague structure. Ellis thought he caught a glint of lamplight. As they neared the building, perhaps another cabin out here in the woods, the silhouette of a man sprang from among the trees. The distinct metallic clank of a readied firearm sounded out from the shadow man. Without slowing, Reeves said, It's me, Skids. I have a guest. Good to see you, Chet, said the gunman as they passed. Polly's in there right now, if you come to talk to him. Now Ellis could see the row of chrome and steel shining in the moonlight and dim porch light. At least five motorcycles parked outside a largest wood cabin. So, said Ellis, how'd a guy like you come to lead a bunch of bandits and ruffians like the Littleton Motorcycle Club? Reeves stopped and turned on Ellis. Make no mistake, Mr. Ellis, or whatever your name is. I don't lead these men, but, for whatever reason, they have chosen to defer to me in many matters. But I am not their leader. The big man held the propaganda agent in his gaze as if making sure they came to terms. Then he said, Let me get you a drink. Reeves showed him the whole operation. The still, the aging casks, the bottling line, the label press, the crates, the two shipping trucks, all of it. After, they sat on the porch and sipped the distilled liquor from jigger glasses. It's good, Ellis said. Damn good. What did you expect? His host asked. I don't know. Not this. Nowhere near this. The aging folk singer sighed. They don't expect much from us up here, but with my name behind it, maybe. Ellis cleared his throat. You're not worried about Vice? Reeves looked around him, then leaned in to refill Ellis's glass. You mean that kid? He muttered. Pickle? You know? He's going to get himself killed if he's not careful. Hell, if I guessed it, the club certainly suspects. Maybe you should tell him before he's made. I can't get involved. I can't even look like I'm involved. It's a tightrope walk I'm performing here, Mr. Ellis. I love this town. I love these people. If they've fallen into criminal activity, they've done it out of desperation. You have to understand, these boys in the club, they grew up here. Their fathers were the last generation of men who could make a living in the mines before the mountain tapped out. So these boys enlisted. Most of them fought the Reds. And when they came home, there was still nothing for them here. That's why they do what they do. They're angry, and they're in need. My plan is to build something we can all be proud of. A legitimate industry. Employ these boys. And you know what? 
It's working. Pretty soon, we'll have our government license. This town won't be plagued with criminals anymore. They'll all have legitimate jobs. Because they're working for you? That seems like wishful thinking. It's not. And they won't be working for me. If anything, I'm working for them. The distiller, Polly, he has a talent. So I'm investing in him. But he and the boys, they own the business. Vice tax is killing people. It won't stop anyone from drinking. We've run the numbers. We can do this cheaply. And you've tasted it. Well, you better get the business up and running before the feds bring down the motorcycle club. If Vice sent Pickle, they're looking for bootleggers, not highwaymen. They don't care about robbery any more than propaganda cares about Vice. But I take your point. That's why I booked the gig. We just need a little more capital. This performance. And maybe two or three more. And I think we'll have the push we need to get this going. No debt. No investors. Other than me. These boys, these ruffians, will be the seed of a new prosperous community here in Littleton. Tilting back, Els took his drink in one gulp, wiped his mouth, and said, Yeah, well, I think you should cancel the show. Why would I do that? Ellis scowled at the man, whose voice once set the government district ablaze. Why did you incite that Capitol building riot, Mr. Reeves? I did what I did back then. I had my reasons. But that's not my game right now. I just want to help this town. That's all. Fine. But you might not be able to control it this time. Look, Mr. Reeves, you've been gone a while, so maybe you don't know. But there's a tinderbox down in that city. And you're just the spark to set it ablaze, to throw the whole country into chaos. Is civilization so fragile? Just to be on the safe side, I need to give you some direction on your performance. What you can say to the audience, what songs you can sing, that sort of thing. I will not be censored, Mr. Ellis. Not anymore. I'm done with propaganda. Don't look at it that way. It's a public service, Mr. Reeves. You get your charity money, and no one gets trampled by an angry mob. Everyone wins. I was foolish and idealistic once. I believed in the lies the propaganda ministry spewed. But up here, away from the, the signal, I can hear my heart. I can form my own views, and I refuse to be part of that corruption ever again. Don't think you can escape the machine, Mr. Reeves. The very fact that you're separate from it is abhorrent to the machine. It will incorporate you, one way or another. Reeves laughed. What are you talking about? The machine? Don't make the mistake of ascribing consciousness to this corrupt system of ours. As you yourself have witnessed, the various ministries don't even communicate with each other. Then you won't let me advise you? I'm done with such things. I will follow my own way. I guess there's nothing else for me to do then. I'll be on my way as soon as I can secure transport back to the city. Your reformed ruffians dumped my automobile in preparation to off me. Reeves let out a dark laugh. You shouldn't worry about that. The fact that Lowe came to me says he wanted to do the right thing. He just needed a little push. You see... This is how human beings behave in the wild. We follow our consciences, our judgment. I'll tell you what. You need to spend more time here. The Imperial gig is in a few days. You're welcome to ride along with me to the city. And until then, 
You'll be my guest. The motorcycle club won't harm you. I give you my word. What do you say? It's the least I could do to make up for the loss of your vehicle. Fine. The cabin of Ellis's former confinement turned out to be quite homey, if rustic, under altered circumstances. Lowe gave him his gun back, but made no apology for the bruise on his face or the loss of his rented vehicle. He merely gestured down the road and said, It's about a 15-minute walk to town. Pickle said nothing, and shortly the pair were roaring off into the night. The kitchen cupboards held cans of beans, chicken soup, and an assortment of pickled vegetables, but to Ellis's cursing chagrin, no alcohol of any kind. He ate some beans and slept fitfully on a well-worn sofa. In the morning, he made the trek into town. It turned out to be no farther than Lowe indicated, but after a restless night and with a head still throbbing with the previous day's beating, it certainly took longer than 15 minutes. He found the diner with the video phone out front and reported in with Fulcrum. He kept his account of the adventure brief and assured her he would still be working on convincing Reeves to agree to some basic messaging parameters. The vidphone receiver gave her voice a distant, grainy quality, as she said, Well, do what you can, Rhett. We have contingencies in the case of failure. After the call, Ellis crawled into a booth inside the diner and ordered eggs, toast, and coffee. And keep the coffee coming, he told the waitress. He watched Pickle approach the restaurant and use the vid phone, a quick call, after which he looked around as if looking to see if anyone were watching him. Sloppy, Ellis thought. Coming inside, Pickle spotted Ellis and regarded him thoughtfully for a moment, before glancing around then crossing over and sliding into the booth across from him. They're calling me in. That's for the best, kid. Yeah, I guess I blew it. But is it my fault Littleton MC or just a bunch of stick-up boys? Ellis shrugged and grinned. There are no taxes lost on robbery. Exactly, Pickle said. He had the look of an older man now, tired and disillusioned. Worst thing is, I'll probably never get another chance to prove myself. Ellis sipped his coffee. He had no words of comfort for the boy, his own fate being so uncertain at the moment. Would Bree be able to get him hired back on with the ministry? Even if he fails at this mission, he could only try not to think about it. You have an extraction plan? He asked the undercover agent. Pickle eyed him for a moment, as if weighing his response. Not yet. You know, Lowe and I are escorting Chet to the theater. You're coming along for that, right? Maybe I give you boys a slip once we're in the city. Vice has me checking in every day now, though. I don't know why. Pickle absently traced the wood grains on the surface of the table for a moment. Then he looked up at Ellis with a half-smile and said, I just wish I could keep my motorcycle. The day came. Pickle told Ellis to meet him, Lowe, and Reeves in the park at noon. They'd take one of the delivery trucks into the city together. It was ten yet. Ellis had some time to kill. He walked to the diner, as had become his Littleton routine. In the diner, he found a used plate on his usual table, along with a newspaper. He sat there anyway. The paper was a few days old. He realized he hadn't taken in any news since arriving in Littleton. So he read it over while the waitress cleared the table. 
The front page was all about a coming manufacturing boom that's supposed to put the Reds' production numbers to shame. The war is over, but we are still fighting communism on the battlefield of the global economy, said some economist Ellis had never heard of. It was a good quote, and he wondered who in the ministry had actually crafted it. Business as usual. It wasn't until the third page that he saw something that gave him pause. An article about the left party's support of the re-emerging labor movement. Ellis audibly scoffed at this. The left didn't want that headache any more than the right did, although they sure as hell wanted the voter base. But it was a quote from the leftist senator that got the wheels in Ellis's head turning. We support the plight of working class citizens. They are the very heart of any democratic civilization. By contrast, the right has been going out of their way to silence the voices of our working class. Threats have been made against labor movement leaders such as Chester Reeves, who is coming out of retirement at this critical time. The quote smacked of the contrived. But what was the intended upshot? After his breakfast, Ellis left the diner to walk the rustic streets of Littleton one last time. He couldn't get that article out of his mind, though. The right would certainly have much to gain from Reeves' death, but they wouldn't make threats. They were really going to do it. A terrible thought began to percolate. He found himself at the edge of the river as the thought came to a boil. If Reeves doesn't fall in line with leftist messaging, they'd kill him rather than allow him to upset the status quo. Accusing the right was the red herring. He looked at his watch. It was approaching noon. Maybe he could have one more try at convincing Reeves to fall in line with ministry messaging. If Reeves knew his life was in danger, would that help or hurt Ellis' chances of convincing him? Ellis jogged back to the park where Pickle told him to meet them. He got there around quarter till, but didn't see Pickle, Lowe, or Reeves. Noon came and went, and the men didn't arrive. Ellis looked around for any vehicles he had missed, mostly broken-down automobiles and a handful of leaning motorcycles. Another 15 minutes passed. Some of those unkempt kids had been playing at sticks in the park while Ellis waited. Any of you kids know who Chester Reeves is? he inquired. Of course! said the oldest, a boy in a wool cap. Everyone knows Mr. Reeves. He was just here, another boy offered. Ellis squinted at the boy. When? The boy shrugged. This morning, the oldest boy said. A couple hours ago, I guess. Ellis cursed. Of course. He looked harder at the motorcycles and found one he recognized. The saddlebags and the long holster for a scattergun. It was Lowe's bike, but where was Pickle's bike? Vice had Pickle checking in every day before his extraction. Ellis speculated someone in propaganda may have contacted Vice. They would have wanted to keep the lines of communication open while they decided what to do about Reeves. It was clear to them that Ellis had failed to convince Reeves to come back under propaganda's guidance. What was it Bree had said? We have contingencies in the case of failure. Was Pickle one of those contingencies? They had put out that news story to seed the public's expectations about what might happen to Reeves and who might be responsible. Misinformation. Pickle would be the gunman. Ellis's stomach turned. Pickle needed to prove himself to his superiors. Ellis could relate to that, but could he murder a beloved public figure like Chester Reeves? Ellis thought about what he himself was willing to do to get his position back. Tell lies. Spin truths manipulate human minds 
But murder? In Ellis' estimation, Pickle wasn't a clever fellow. Just a soldier. He seemed like he knew how to use that stutter gun, but hell if he had any other skills. Yeah, Ellis said to himself, looking vaguely into the distance. But what am I going to do about it? Minutes later, Ellis was racing down the winding mountain road, hunched over the handlebars of Lowe's motorcycle. Fly to people, he could do. He'd be making them feel safe in this sinister world, which was plenty justification in his own mind. But murder? Maybe being up in the peaks had actually undermined his cynicism. Maybe the machine really was too far away to matter. Maybe he could finally remember how important human life really is. But he had to stop the assassination of Chester Reeves. To that end, he was fine with hot wiring and stealing Lowe's motorcycle. It might just save the old ruffian's life, too. He only hoped he wasn't already too late. Would Pickle escort Reeves all the way to the city and kill him before the performance? No, Ellis reasoned. His mission would be to take out Reeves on the road, up here in the mountain country where no one will know. He'd never arrive in the city and people would assume the promised performance had been some prank or else they'd speculate about the conservative party's role in Reeves' disappearance or hell, some other thing. The facts would be obscured and that was key. Ellis slowed to cross the steel great surface of one of the green bridges, then gunned the engine on the other side. Minutes later, the river curved back in toward the road. Ellis rounded the bend and found the next bridge just ahead. A rusted delivery truck sat idling at the entrance to the bridge. Its back end outswung into the wrong lane, ribbons of black trailing behind. Ellis squeezed the handlebar brake like it were an open wound, stood on the rear brake. He felt the back tire lift off and turn in, screaming. He let off, regained a degree of control, then grabbed the handlebar brake again. The motorcycle came to a stop. The engine made a choking sound and fell silent. Ellis sat on the bike and looked around. A profound quiet had settled in. The river gushed below the bridge. The pine quills danced above, but in the middle space between, nothing moved or made a sound. Ellis kicked down the stand and threw his leg over the bike, drawing his pistol as he stood. The truck's driver's side cab door hung open, like a rotting bandage exposing its gaping injury. Across the length of the bridge, Ellis could see Pickle's prized motorcycle, the one he was so loath to give up parked sideways in the center of the road, just like the agent had learned to do as a highwayman. On the bridge, between the motorcycle and the truck, lay a man, flat upon his back, arms and legs splayed. Holding his pistol in front of him, Ellis edged closer to the truck. Through the open cab door, he could see dozens of round holes in the windshield. He looked into the cab and lowered his gun. The big man lay against the dash, his red flannel shirt soaked in a much deeper maroon that pooled up around his feet and ran across the floor. His broad shoulders hung, still and breathless. Chester Reeves was dead. Ellis walked over to the body lying in the road. It was Pickle, still clutching the grip of his stutter gun. He had the aspect of a frog pinned down by some 
artless dissector, his chest gaping and smashed in with the blast of a thousand tiny wounds. Ellis cursed. Behind him, someone coughed wetly. Ellis spun around, leveling his pistol. Coming around to the far side of the truck, he found Lowe leaning against the tire, his scatter gun resting on his lap. The biker gripped his abdomen with a blood-soaked hand and looked up at Ellis. His eyes, once so cold and menacing, now looked just like the eyes of a child set upon by sudden calamity. Ellis knelt beside the dying man and knew instantly that any attempt to help him would be futile. Is he dead? Lowe muttered. Ellis nodded. Yeah, you got him. Lowe swallowed down what Ellis assumed was a mouthful of blood. Good. That fed bastard was suspicious when he asked to take point on his bike, but I didn't think. Lowe groaned, leaned his head back against the tire, grimaced, and went silent. Can I get you anything? Ellis asked. Water? Lowe didn't respond. His hand loosened its grip on his abdomen, and his body sank a little more as one last push of air escaped his mouth. Ellis insisted on meeting Bree Fulcrum in person, a bar in the manufacturing district not far from the old Imperial Theater. Am I a loose end? He asked her. If our history still means anything to you, be straight with me. Fulcrum took a sip of wine, her lips leaving red on the edge of the glass. She swallowed, set the glass down, then looked away. Is that it then? Ellis said. Fulcrum held out her hands in a gesture of supplication. What do you want from me, Rhett? I did my job. I'm sorry you got in the middle of it. The real question is, do you want back in or not? And if I don't? She took a heavy breath, made a face. You're a loose end, Rhett, all right? But you're talented. There's work for you if you want it. Ellis stood and thumbed some bills out onto the table. He said, your drink's on me. Thank you for listening to The Propagandist Part 3 on the Lies and Half-Truths Podcast. This story was written and performed by A.P. Weber. The music was provided by Das Verlin, and Josiah Martins wrote the theme song. Meg Weber produced the show, along with me, your host, A.P. Weber. I'd like to invite you to get in touch with us. You can email your feedback to truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. And of course, we're on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is at A.P. Weber. In particular, we'd be interested in hearing from other writers who want their work to be featured on a future episode. The email again is truthsandhalftruths at gmail.com. Also, please consider reviewing this show 
on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found it. Thanks. On the next episode of Lies and Half-Truths, the first in a four-part tale called Cephalopod Sign, in which, well, that title's pretty self-explanatory, right? But you won't know unless you listen.